Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and today we're going to take our first step towards escaping the cave by learning about, well, the cave, specifically Plato's allegory of the cave, which is from book seven of his famous work, The Republic. So I wanted to do this episode on this topic um, for a number of reasons, but firstly, because I think it really explains the meaning of the show and subsequently the name of the show. Um, obviously, if you're listening, you understand that this podcast is called Plato's Cave, and it's not named that arbitrarily. Um, so I want to really go into this um, and and explain to you guys and really explain to myself a little bit what my purpose is in doing this. And um, namely, that is to escape the cave, which we'll understand what that means better in a few minutes. But I want to um, to base this episode on the Republic, like I said, from Plato, and I'm also going to tie it in with Nietzsche's work, uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. So I'm going to walk us through both of those and give my thoughts and explain really what this show is going to be all about. So um, stay with me, and I really hope you enjoy it. So what I'm going to do first is just read um, the uh, the conversation that details Plato's allegory of the cave. So if you're not aware of it, Plato actually writes through the voice of Socrates, who um, is this, you know, traveling um, kind of vagabond character who has conversations with um, a bunch of people in Greece. So he'll have conversations with the ruling class, he'll have conversations with the peasant class, with, um, with tradesmen, with... Um, you know, all kinds of people. And even he has, you know, conversations with his companions. And so this uh, conversation is one in which he has with Glaucon, who is one of his young um, companions. So what I'm going to do, like I said, is just read the story. um, And then I'm going to circle back around and explain why it means anything to me, why it impacted me so much the first time I read it. So um, I'm going to talk in the first person of Socrates, and then um, every once in a while, Socrates will ask Glaucon a question, like, do you understand? Do you agree? Etc. So um, then, then I'll, I'll indicate when I'm speaking as Glaucon. So, okay, so Socrates is speaking with Glaucon. And now I said, let me show you in a figure how far our nature is enlightened or unenlightened. Behold. Human beings living in an underground den, which has an open mouth towards the light, and reaching all along the den. Here they have been from their childhood, and their legs and necks chained so that they cannot move, and can only see before them, being prevented by the chains from turning round their heads. Above and behind them a fire is blazing at a distance, and between the fire and the prisoners there is a raised way, and if you will see... If you look, a low wall built along the way, like a screen which marionette players have in front of them, over which they show the puppets. Glaucon responds, I see. And do you see, I said, men passing along the wall carrying all sorts of vessels and statues and figures of animals made of wood and stone and other various materials which appear over the wall. Some of them are talking, others silent. Glaucon says, you have shown me a strange image and they are strange prisoners. Like ourselves, I replied, 
and they see only their own shadows, or the shadows of one another, which the fire throws on the opposite wall of the cave. Glaucon responds, True. How could they see anything but the shadows if they were never allowed to turn their heads? And Socrates responds, And of the objects which are being carried in like manner, they would only see the shadows? Yes, Glaucon responds. And if they were able to converse with one another, would they not suppose that they were naming what was actually before them? Glaucon says, very true. And suppose further that the prison had an echo which came from the other side. Would they not be sure to fancy when one of the passers-by spoke in that voice, which they had heard come from the passing shadow? No question, Glaucon replied. To them, I said, the truth would literally be nothing but the shadows of the images. Glaucon responds, that is certain. And now look again, and see what will naturally follow if the prisoners are released and disabused of their error. And first, when any of them is liberated and compelled suddenly to stand up and turn his neck round and walk towards the light, he will suffer sharp pains. The glare will distress him, and he will be unable to see the realities of which in his former state he had seen in the shadows, and then conceive someone saying to him that what he saw was an illusion, but that now when he is approaching nearer to being and his eye is turned towards the more real existence, he has a clearer vision. What will be his reply? And you may further imagine that his instructor is pointing to the objects as they pass and requiring him to name them. Will he not be perplexed? Will he not fancy that the shadows which he formerly saw are truer than the objects which are now shown to him? Far truer, Glaucon responds. And if he is compelled to look straight at the light, will he not have a pain in his eyes which will make him turn to take the objects of vision which he can see and which he will conceive to be in clearer reality than the things which are now being shown to him? True, Glaucon said. And suppose once more that he is reluctantly dragged up a steep and rugged ascent and held fast until he's forced into the presence of the sun itself, so that he is not likely to be pained and irritated? When he approaches the light, his eyes will be dazzled, and he will not be able to see anything at all of what are now called realities. Not at all in the moment, Glaucon said. He will require to grow accustomed to the sight of the upper world, and at first he will see the shadows best, next the reflections of men and other objects in the water, then the objects themselves, then he will gaze upon the light of the moon and the stars and the spangled heaven, and he will see the sky and the stars by night better than the sun or the light of the sun by day. Certainly, Glaucon says. Last of all, he would be able to see the sun, and not mere reflections of it in the water, but he will see it in its own proper place and not in another, and he will contemplate the sun as it is. Certainly, Glaucon said. He will then proceed to argue that it is the sun who gives the seasons and the years, and it is the guardian of all that is in the visible world, and in a certain way the cause of all things which he and his fellows have been accustomed to behold. Clearly, Glaucon said, he would first see the sun and then reason about it. And when he remembered his old habituation and the wisdom of the den and his fellow prisoners, do you not suppose that he would felicitate himself on the change and pity them? Certainly he would, Glaucon said. And if they were in the habit of conferring honors among themselves on those who were quickest to observe the passing shadows and to remark which of them went before and which followed after and which were together, and of who, therefore, was best able to draw conclusions as to the future— do you think that he would care for such honors and glories, or envy the possessors of them? Would he not say with Homer, 
better to be the poor servant of a poor master and to endure anything rather than to think as they do and live after their manner? Yes, Glaucon said. I think you would rather suffer anything than entertain these false notions and live in this miserable manner. Imagine once more, I said, such a one coming suddenly out of the sun to, to be replaced in his old situation. Would he not be certain to have his eyes full of darkness? And if there were a contest, and if he had to compete in measuring the shadows with the person who had never been moved out of the den, while his sight was still weak, and before his eyes had become steady, would he not be ridiculous? Men would say of him that he went up and down, and he came without his eyes, and that it was not better to even think of ascending out of the cave. And if anyone tried to lose another, and lead him into the light, let him only catch the offender, and they would put him to death." No question, Glaucon said. This entire allegory, I said, you may now append, dear Glaucon, to the previous argument. The prison house is the world of sight. The light of the fire is the sun, and you will not misapprehend me if you interpret the journey upwards to be the ascent of the soul into the intellectual world according to my poor belief, which, at your desire, I have expressed whether rightly or wrongly God knows. But, whether true or false, my opinion is that, in the world of knowledge, the idea of good appears last of all, and is seen only with an effort, and, when seen, is also inferred to be the universal author of all things beautiful and right, parent of light and of the lord of the light in this visible world, and the immediate source of reason and truth in the intellectual, and that this is the power upon which who he who would act rationally either in public or private life, must have his eye fixed. So that's the allegory of the cave. Um, and if you didn't catch everything on the first read-through or the first listen-through, I can't blame you because um, it's kind of hard to visualize. But um, if, you, if you look at the image that is the cover of my RSS feed, um, it's my little homemade painting of, of the cave. And basically he's, he's painting a picture of our intellectual lives. Honestly, um, he paints us as, you know, people, um, chained looking at a wall and there's shadows on the wall and some echoes of sounds that come from the people who are holding signs behind it. And we all jockey and posture to each other the other people who are chained at who can best identify the shadow or who can best predict which shadow will follow the previous one and it, it is the rare individual who perhaps escapes this hell you could call it and ascends up the cave and even if he can turn around, like, like Socrates says, even if he can manage to turn around or if someone frees him from the chains and he looks back towards the fire, which is casting the shadows, he's going to look into that bright light and find a ton of pain in it and find discomfort. And he's probably going to turn around and look back at the shadows, look at what's comfortable. He knows the shadows. He can predict which one's going to come next. He can sit next to his friends and they can all watch the shadows together. Why would he want to turn around and look at this bright fire that is burning his eyes and 
then what, you know, risk death maybe if his captors don't want to let him go to ascend the cave. And, you know, he's going to claw his way up this hill and it's going to be, it's going to be awful to do this. He's going to scrape his fingers. He's going to be bloodied. Um, and if he gets to the top of the cave and he escapes into the real world, he's not even going to be able to look up because he's used to the darkness of a cave. And if, you know, obviously if someone shines a bright light in your face, as soon as you wake up, it's, it's blinding, it's super painful. You'll look away as soon as you can. And that's what this person is going to do when he enters into the real world with the sunlight. But eventually Socrates says, if you get a taste of the real world and of truth, you will be so drawn to it that you force yourself to gradually look up and see things as they are, things in and of themselves. And then you can eventually see the sun, which is the source of all of this. And so I think there's a lot of obvious comparisons um, and analogies that you can make to everyday life from this. But before we get into that, I want to maybe supplement this or compare it to the second work I mentioned, which is Thus Spoke Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. So <clears throat> I'm not going to read all of the work, but here is the basic plot line. Um, and I'm going to borrow heavily from an amazing podcast that really inspired me a lot. It's called Philosophize This by Stephen West. So if you somehow haven't heard of that, um, I would highly recommend it. But so Nietzsche is writing this work of fiction, um, and it's called Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And it's about this guy named Zarathustra who exists a long time ago. And he was basically a monk um, who lived in the mountains in a cave above this town. And he spent his years meditating, contemplating on the nature of good and evil, the nature of life and society's values. So after 10 years of thinking by himself up in this cave, Zarathustra descends down into the town to tell the townsfolk what he's been thinking about up in the mountains. He explains to them that the meaning of life is to struggle to become what he calls the ubermensch, or overman, sometimes translated as even superman. <clears throat> so, <laughs> as you might predict, the townspeople don't really understand what he's talking about. So, he elaborates by way of a long analogy. So, he says, everyone who's ever existed is born into life as a camel. And he chooses this animal for a very specific reason. Uh, a camel is a beast of burden. It carries the loads that others place on its back. And camels are directed towards destinations they don't choose. Even the eldest and lightest packed camels are still camels. They're still transporting a load to where someone else tells them to transport it. Now, Nietzsche likens this to the position that we're naturally born into you know we're born into a society and from the first time that anyone says anything to us they are saddling us down basically with values with loads with caring about cultural practices that they foist upon us not things that we choose ourselves and Nietzsche says that 99.999 percent of people will also live and die as camels. 
Nietzsche says that literally everything about us comes from these external values and practices, like I said, that are foisted on us since day one. Think about it. I mean, literally everything comes down to this. The career path you choose, the way you act around people, the way you dress and speak or don't dress and don't speak, etc. This goes deeper than any one of us realize. And here's the thing. It's, it's not that any of these practices are wrong. Like, it's not wrong for me to wear, um, you know, pants at work instead of shorts. Um, that's not intrinsically wrong or inherently wrong. It's that they're foisted on me by reasons that I didn't really want or don't really have an interest in. Like, I don't, you know, I would probably be more comfortable in sweatpants or shorts, but... I don't wear those to work. Why? Well, because it's the cultural practice to wear pants to work. And you just, I mean, that's a stupid example, but think about how deep this runs. Nietzsche says that literally everything that is, you know, makes us who we are basically comes down to factors like this. Um, I mean, you know, uh, the haircut I have. Why do I have the haircut that I have? Well, because I, you know, want to look good and, you know, hopefully attract a, a lady companion. And the way to do that is to dress like people and look like people and get a haircut like people who are culturally, you know, looked at as the attractive people. But, you know, why, why do I want that? Why do I want to be like them? I don't really know. It's not... It's not something that I chose. It's just a cultural practice. And, you know, why didn't I take a gap year in between going to high school and going to college? Well, I don't know. I mean, I probably would have benefited a lot from it, actually. I didn't really know <laughs> what what I wanted to do or what options there even were. And I wasn't really that mature as an 18-year-old coming out of college. I mean, coming out of high school. So a, a semester abroad, a year abroad, um, a year reading at home even, that would have really shaped my character. But why didn't I do it? Well, because that's not what's expected of people. I would have been looked at as, you know, um, a loser, in, a, in, you know, not mincing words. Um, you want to get into the best school you can and major in something prestigious so that you can, you know, have people think that you're a success and that you can make money so that you can, you know, buy nice things. Um, but what's the end? What's the end goal of that? It's just you're sort of satiating desires that you're not really sure why you have. Um, because other people have sort of imported or exported rather their values onto you. And so Nietzsche says that this runs deeper than we can possibly imagine. It's literally everything about us. And if you don't believe me, then just consider what the cost would be of doing otherwise. So for instance, if you're like, well, Jordan, listen, listen, this is like this. Okay, sure. You sound like a, an enlightened, you know, pot smoking hippie. And, <laughs> you know, you can say all this, sure, sure, like society tells me to wear pants to work, that's fine. But what, what's the big deal? 
why, you know, I, I don't really mind that much. And sure, 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 you probably don't. And I don't mind that much either. But think about how strange it would be if I showed up to work in sweatpants tomorrow, or if you showed up to work in sweatpants tomorrow. Would it actually affect your ability to do your job? Probably not. Probably in literally no way would it affect your ability to do your job. So why would you or anyone else care? Well, because, you know, you've got to be a company man. You have to put your best foot forward, have a firm handshake, dress the right way. And if you're wearing sweatpants, then you're not dressed the right way. So you're going to get weird looks. Someone's going to say like, hey, what are you wearing? You're going to like, people are going to like talk about you behind your back and you want those people to like you, right? So you're not going to do it. Just imagine how deep that runs. It's everything about you. It's the way you interact with people. It's the way you make eye contact or don't. It's the way you reflexively go for a handshake or don't. You're constantly mediating your own view of yourself and the world through the expectations and eyes of other people. Okay, so I think you get the picture. So what does Nietzsche say is the escape from this? Well, <clears throat> he says the next step is to progress to the lion. And he says that only a few lucky people will see these external impositions for what they are and understand that they're an arbitrary tradition. You know, like going to college immediately after high school, that's an arbitrary um, tradition. Wearing pants to work, an, an arbitrary tra uh, tradition. So the lion recognizes these for what they are and says no to these traditions. The lion... Um, Zarathustra says, must slay the dragon of thou shalt. Each scale on the dragon says, thou shalt do something. Thou shalt um, wear pants to work. Thou shalt say bless you when someone sneezes. Thou shalt attend college right after high school. Thou shalt go to the best college he can, even if it doesn't offer the major he's interested in. Thou shalt, you know, you can go on and on. And so when you slay each one of those scales and you say, no, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that, you are successfully slaying the dragon and becoming a lion. But this is not enough. This is not the destination, um, Nietzsche says. Because, you know, it's all well and good, I guess, to, to understand, you know, that none of these desires are actually yours, none of these... Uh, None of these practices that you, you do automatically are yours in any deep sense. But, you know, so what? Then you sort of are just in a nihilistic position. And that is antithetical to what Nietzsche wants. So then he says you have to progress to the stage that he calls being a child. So the lion obviously just says no to everything. And that's juxtaposed to the blind yes of the camel. But neither one of these is enough. Neither one of these is a destination. And a lot of people get stuck at the lion stage. And the reason why is because, you know, it's, you can feel sort of empowered, I guess, by, by you know, slaying these scales and saying, no, I'm not going to do this or no, I'm not going to do that. But again, it's not, the, it's not that each one of these thou shouts are wrong in and of themselves, just because the arbitrary values and meanings people get from the camel stage are false 
doesn't mean that the lion is right, that there are no values or meanings anywhere. It means that you create these values for yourself. You're the one who has to, and the only one who can decide what actually matters to you, what you want your life to be like. You can't just let it be defined by loads that people place on your back like a camel, and you can't find the meaning of life in just saying no to those like the lion. You have to rise above it, and you have to look at what you have the potential to be. You have to look at what your best self could be, not in some cliched or sarcastic way. Nietzsche says that you actually have to tear yourself open and be brutally honest and look inside yourself. You know what you actually want to be and what you actually can do, but you're terrified of this. Nietzsche says that people fear their higher self, their potential, their ubermensch, because the potential demands they act on it. What people really fear isn't failure or not getting the job they want or not being liked. It's, it's the fear of not succeeding. It's the fear of not recognizing your potential. It's looking back at 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years old and seeing that you did nothing that you care about in life. And now it's too late. It's too hard to change. That's what people really fear the most. Nietzsche says that it's hard to find what this meaning is. And the only way to really do it is to be brutally honest with yourself. You have to ask yourself what you've loved up until now, free from this external pressures of, of society or the things that people tell you to value. Ask yourself, what are those things you wistfully think about doing and then fearfully snap shut once you realize you could in fact do them if you actually had the courage to think about those side projects those labors of love that you always think that would that be so amazing to do for a living but you don't do them because well because of society or the expectations of your parents or just that's the way the world works. You just can't do it. I can't make tables for a living because, you know, who would buy them? How can I make a living? I'd have to take out a loan, etc. Nietzsche says that these are the answers that have been side of you all along. And importantly, Nietzsche says this stage is not about completing your goals. Being a child is not about really completing your goals, checking off and saying, okay, I make tables for a living now. This is my dream. No, it's not about that. It's about pursuing your goals, pursuing your dreams, struggling towards them for the rest of your life. Struggle is the end, not a means to another end. Seeking comfort is another way we lapse into the camel mindset. To fully reach our potential, as we ourselves define it, we must rise to the challenge and struggle towards it every day of our lives. This is why being a child is so difficult. It requires us to say yes, but not in the camel sense. It requires us to say yes to the things called forth by our own potential. When you're being brutally honest with yourself and admitting, wow, this is what I want out of life. This is what I want to do today. This is what I want to do this year. This is what I want to struggle towards. It's, it's being a child in the best sense of the word, full of energy and interest and life. And... Nietzsche says that the, you know, the great tragedy of the world really is that almost no one gets back to this, back to this stage. Most people live and die as camels. Some people can glimpse the stage of being a lion, but almost no one lives their life as a child. 
And I think that this has obviously a lot of really powerful analogies to the cave where, you know, you can see a lot of similarities. Socrates or Plato says that the people in the cave have been there since their childhood and they have their legs and necks chained so that they cannot move and can only see in front of them. This is the same picture that Nietzsche paints. We're all born into being a camel, and the chains that keep us looking at the shadows on the wall are these societal pressures and constraints. It's the same thing. Socrates also says that the men who turn around will likely, like I said, be blinded by this fire and seek comfort again in the shadows. Because I think, as Nietzsche says, it's really painful, actually, to slay the dragon of thou shalt. It's really, really difficult to be brutally honest with yourself and admit sometimes that you've wasted a lot of time. You might have wasted years, even decades of your life doing things you don't want to do. And that's that's really, really difficult for people to admit. And I'm not just talking about like career choices or... Um, you know, that's the, I'm sure that's the, that's the example that most comes to mind for people, but even, I mean, really, really painful things to admit, like you've been dating someone or married to someone that you don't want to be married to or be dating that you've, you know, spent money on a nice sports car instead of traveling across Europe, recreating, you know, the map that a soldier might've taken during world war one, um, you know, you've never actually read this one book because it conflicted with your religious beliefs, something like that. You have to admit and recognize all of the things that you haven't done and all of the things that you're scared to do now because of societal pressures or because that you think that it's unrealistic or for any any of these cutting reasons that he talks about. And, you know, the ascent up the cave that... Socrates says that, you know, one lucky man might be dragged up. Well, Nietzsche would say, no, that, that path is always available to us. We can always free ourselves from the chains and struggle and claw our way up, up this path that leads out of the cave. And that I think is, is part of the process of, um, becoming a child. I think, you know, part of the process of becoming a lion is saying no, which would be analogous to standing up, freeing yourself from the chains, turning around and looking at the fire and, and, and saying, no, I'm not going to, you know, practice this, this shadow, you know, um, identification, this, this jockeying with my other prisoners. And, um, you know, then, then you've, you've become the lion at that point. And the next stage would be to, to actually, you know, not just stand there, not just sit back down and say, I recognize this is all a facade. I think the next step Nietzsche would say is to say, yes, I have the potential to climb this ascent out of the cave. And you actually have to do it, which is the struggle. That's what Nietzsche says is the whole point of this is to struggle towards things that you actually want to do. And this is, this is the part that is really powerful to me. I'm going to reread it from the allegory of the cave. Imagine once more, I said, such a one coming suddenly out of the sun to be replaced in his old situation. Would he not be certain to have his eyes full of darkness? 
Socrates is asking, if we took someone who had escaped the cave and brought him back into it, wouldn't his eyes be full of darkness? Wouldn't he be unable to see? And if there were a contest, and if he had to compete in measuring the shadows with the prisoners who had never moved out of the den, while his sight was still weak, and before his eyes had become steady, would he not be ridiculous? This is, I, I mean, this is so powerful to me, because I think that when, you know, someone who's been struggling to become a child returns to the world in the life of other camels, I think he's identified as ridiculous. I think people look at camels, if they're lions, and say, wow, that guy is a fool. That guy's a loser. He's, he's backpacking through Europe instead of going to college, or he's doing a job that pays, you know, half of the money that he could be making as a broker, or wow, he has a shitty car. Um, he must, he must have managed his money poorly, not knowing that maybe he's actually spending his money on something that makes him happy. And I think that these two works have made a really, really huge impact on me in the last couple months. And they inspired me to do this podcast, which is, again, it's so funny when I tell, you know, when I share this project with some people, this is just a passion project. I'm, it, I'd literally cost me money to do this. And when I tell people about it, most of the time, they kind of think it's stupid. They kind of think it's a waste of time. Um, like, you know, what? You're, you're talking to yourself or to other people into a microphone about stories written by ancient Greek people you know, a couple thousand years ago, that's kind of dumb. Why don't you come out to the bar and drink? Or why don't you instead, you know, I don't know, get a girlfriend and, and spend all your money at fancy dinners and talk about nothing? Or why don't you, you know, spend more time at work, advance up the corporate ladder? And it, it it's not, <clears throat> I don't know, that's not what life's about. And I'm not, saying that by any means I am, you know, some enlightened child who's talking to you. But I think what part of this podcast is for is is for me to challenge myself to actually climb that wall to to stand up and free myself from the chains and look back at the fire and say, wow, a lot of the things I care about, I'm sort of pretending to care about or convincing myself to care about. And you know, I think a lot of that's a facade. Um, and insofar as I can share that with people, then, um, that's an intrinsic good from my perspective. So like I said, um, that's going to be the purpose of this podcast, the goal of this podcast. And with the more incremental, more explicit goal of, um, preparing me to go back to school for a PhD in philosophy and to teach, um, and to do research of my own, and to write and think about these things. So that's the goal of this show, and I really hope to share a lot with you and to talk with really interesting people, and I really hope that you get some value out of it, um, because I know I already have just preparing the material for this first episode. So I... um 
I want to thank everyone who's still listening at this point for listening. And, um, I guess encourage you to be a fan of the show because I hope to really do some awesome things on here and really have it grow. And if you want to support that, if you want to support the creation of this show, um, I would really, really appreciate that. You can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-M-Y-E-R-S. You can also follow me on Twitter and um, check out some of the stuff I'm doing um, in general there. And you can also uh, help me out by um, emailing me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com, no apostrophe in that, and um, recommending, you know, some things that you would like me to talk about or people that I should have on the show. Because um, part of this is going to be me having conversations with smart people educated people on topics that I know nothing about. So if you want to do that, um, if you want to uh, support the show, you can do either of those things. And of course, if you also want to help by sharing this with other people, um, spreading the word or discussing it on your own show, of course, that would really help too. So for now, um, thank you for listening. And I hope you join me on my process of struggling to escape the cave. <laughs>